So this morning, um, I'm going to be talking about this, the, the concept of double-mindedness, and it, it is in Scripture, um, but it's really about sport, spiritual warfare. It's this idea, um, well, let's first talk about what does it mean to be double-minded. Um, Webster describes it as, when you're double-minded, you're wavering in mind, you're undecided, or you're vacillating, um, which is probably what most of you would have guessed it to be. Um, James talks about what being undivided is in, in chapter 1 of James, verse 8, where he says, uh, man's unstable in all his ways. So that's sort of what it looks like in terms of being undecided is you become unstable. I kind of define what, being un, what it, it is, is a scripture, from a scriptural standpoint, just t- taking God's scriptural truths, biblical truths, and you're mixing them with your own uh, ideas that come really from yourself, from your flesh. So, for example, 2 Corinthians 5.17. Um, let's look at what that says. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. Now, we know this is a truth as believers in Christ, that our old nature is gone. This is a truth we can trust in. But I'll give you an example from my own life. When I find myself getting angry at God, and I've struggled with anger in the past, and I get angry, and I'm asking God for forgiveness for this anger, I find myself saying to God, you know, why can't you take away my anger? So what I'm actually doing is I end up I'm blaming God for keeping me in bondage to anger that Corinthians says I've been set free from. So I'm doing the opposite of what this biblical truth is. I'm blaming God, but I'm allowing myself to maintain this bondage to what I have been set free from. So what I'm speaking is an an untruth that's actually contrary to God's word when I'm doing this. And that's just an example. Um, This is where I'm being double-minded myself. I have the mind of Christ, I have scriptural truth, but then I'm acting opposite of what I know to be true. This is something we often do throughout the day numerous times and we don't even realize we're doing it. Um, It happens so much that we're actually blind to, I think, the bigger picture of what's happening. There's, there's a war going on, a spiritual war between our spirit and our flesh. And the problem is, is that um, this happens moment to moment. And as followers of Jesus, we have to understand that there is a war happening first. And this is what first gives us this grounding. So let's start off this morning by this, I think, this important truth that all believers, all followers of Jesus, whether you're new or you've been following Jesus for years and you're mature, the fact is we continually um, are always going to be battling our flesh. And we're always going to be living as a double-minded person if we don't acknowledge this. Let's look at Galatians chapter 5 and verse 13. Here it's talking about the life by the Spirit. It says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So this verse in Galatians, it gives you a picture, I think, of what it looks like as a believer when we're, if we know and we're aware that we're constantly engaged in spiritual warfare, uh, refusing to believe there's a war going on. It's fun. George, it's amazing that he came. He had this in his heart that there's bondages here, and he was praying this morning. God put it on his heart that he sees it in his spirit, what's happening, and we need to acknowledge it. And that's what George did. And he took action behind the fact that he knows that there's bondage here in the community, and we want to be set free from it. Um, there's a cost Jesus paid for our freedom 
And that cost was for the purpose of advancing his kingdom. It wasn't for the purpose of pursuing our own dreams and our own desires, though I would love it to be, but it, it isn't. It's not about that. And it's especially not about those dreams and desires that are based upon just fleshly indulgences that have no meaning, no eternal value. So let's not confuse this calling we have to be free with having this freedom to choose things that we know are harmful. We make hundreds of choices every day, but how often are we making decisions as somebody would when they're engaged in war? I know for me it's little to never, and that's the problem. It's not good, and it's also, it's not realistic. Unless we wage war on all things that hinder God's kingdom and what he wants for us, see, we're going to run the risk of being double-minded. We're going to be deceived, which is another cost when we ignore the war that really is going on around us. We find ourselves, we're not going to be calling out to God for protection. We're not going to be calling out for him when we need wisdom. We're not going to be calling out when we need him to intervene in our situations. And it really does explain when you look at our prayer life how weak it is. Because it's like we're approaching prayer without having a good idea of what's going on around us. So here's a good, another good example of understanding war around us if you use an example of a firefighter. And I really like this picture. So here, a firefighter, he sees the fire, he knows the fire is the enemy. Pretty black and white. He puts on the right protection. You picture a fire, he puts on his helmet, he puts on his breathing apparatus, he puts on this thick clothing to protect him, and he's even got an axe to just, you know, knock down, get into rooms. Um, so why, do they, why does he take all these, prote- all these precautions? He does it because he knows that fire is deadly. He knows fire is the enemy. But do you, and do you, and even do I, look at sin in the same way? Do we approach it like it's dangerous? And most of the time, we're probably going to answer no. We don't. Which is proven, and you guys can probably relate to this, just by our willingness to walk right to the edge of temptation, to toy with it like it's not harmful, to toy with it like we're not in this war. So you think, if you picture this firefighter going in, picture him wearing a bathing suit and flip-flops, you think he's crazy. But as, you know, as absurd as that sounds, we as followers of Jesus, we don't take the same precautions. You know, when it comes to our flesh protecting against the enemy, an enemy who really wants to exploit us, he wants to deceive us more than anything. He wants to twist the truth. So I gave you the fireman example. Now let's look at a scriptural example, Ephesians 6, 13 through 18. It's more of the spiritual equivalent to that. Starting in verse 13, it says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take this helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. So let's continue to talk a little bit about this flesh and spirit thing and how we define ourselves, our identity. 
The best example I like to go to is um, in Romans chapter 7 where Paul's talking. And we'll, we'll, talk, we'll pick it up in verse 18. So Romans 18, starting off saying, For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Kind of like Dr. Seuss, it's like tongue twister. <laughs> but Paul's, he, he admits good itself doesn't dwell in his flesh. That's one definite thing he, he acknowledges. He's talking of his sinful nature in his flesh. So where does evil come from? It comes from our flesh. So where does the good dwell? The good dwells in our spirit. That's the identity he's talking about. Paul has the desire or the will to do good, but his flesh can't carry it out. It's not even possible. So what does he do? Or what does his flesh carry out? His flesh actually ends up carrying out evil. He says, now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me. It kind of sounds like an excuse, doesn't it? Because you're like, what is Paul talking about when he says it's no longer I who do it? Is it his other personality? Sounds like an excuse your kid would say. No, it's not. It's, he's just saying when no longer I who do it, he's identifying his, his true self with his spirit. He's saying this is who Paul is, my spirit. It's not his flesh. So Paul is spirit. So in reality, you and I are spirit. His spirit knows and understands what truth is. The will of Paul and also the will of you and I it rests in our spirit. Wisdom and sound judgment originate in our true selves, which is not our flesh, but our spirit. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. So I want to talk about this self-discipline thing for a second. King James uses, instead of saying self-discipline, King James says sound mind. So when I think of self-discipline and sound mind, those are attributes of our spirit. Our flesh doesn't understand what self-discipline is. So it can't act in accordance with our, with our spirit. It can't and it won't because it has to do with our will. Our flesh is a whole other entity. And our flesh, as you all know, has only one agenda. Basically to feel good, feel comfortable, and make ourselves feel important. And at any cost. That's pretty much the only purpose behind it. So for this reason, you know, we got to learn what flesh there is that we can listen to and then what flesh there is we shouldn't listen to. And I think that's the key to the whole thing is because you can't deny flesh. We're here in a world. We live, we live with it. So the flesh we should not listen to, we also shouldn't just ignore. That's what's really important. But we also have to gauge war against it. Remember, Paul identified himself as the spirit when he said, no longer I who do it. So waging war on your flesh is not waging war on yourself. It doesn't seem like a crazy thing. It actually makes sense because it isn't who we are. We can all do that. 1 John, let's take a look at chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. It says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, 
comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world and all its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So do you ever wonder why you don't have this, you know, love for God you know you should have? I feel that way a lot. Are we listening to our flesh and are we protecting and almost making excuses for our flesh that we actually should be waging war against? I know I do, and mostly it happens 99% of the time when I'm not spending time with God, when I'm not spending time in his word, and I'm not allowing truth to come in. So the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, are we, embl- are we embracing this flesh, therefore becoming this whole concept of double-minded? Does it make us this unstable in what we do, questioning? So let's, take, let's start and look at healthy side of this flesh, because I think it's good to walk through this and look at some scriptural examples. God-given flesh attributes, they exist. But, you know, when those attributes cross this line, they become unhealthy. That's when the fleshly lust that talking about in 1 John. And I think it's good to understand that. Those fleshly lusts were never meant to be controlled. We love to think that we can control them, but that's not its purpose, and we can't. So let's look at some examples in Scripture. Let's, let's pick out and uh, start with the idea of like food, appetite for food. We know this is God-given. There's a very healthy aspect to this. We know that it's meant to nourish. We know it's meant to bring satisfaction. We know it's meant to meet our need. And let's look at an example in uh, Daniel, the first chapter. Here's where Daniel is, um, King Nebuchadnezzar has just, um, King of Babylon took over Judah, and he's trained some of the nobility who served Judah. So Daniel was one of those nobility. And Daniel was picked out specifically for two things, his his, uh, physique and his aptitude. Um, Let's begin reading in verse 5. It says, The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table, and they were to be trained for three years and after that, they were entered to the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. The chief official gave them new names to Daniel, the name Belshazzar, Hananiah, to Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had called the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel, but the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord, the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard, whom the chief official had appointed over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So here Daniel's talking about, he's using the the term defile. And he understood this is a discipline, like we talked about um, coming from the spirit. It's a discipline of diet and it didn't, even compromise when he could have been severely punished for even um, asking that this request be made. Daniel didn't see food as a luxury to be indulged in any way, but he considered it a necessity that also, it brings honor to God in how he treated his body. 
He proved the health benefit of the food of his choice. He didn't even make it a spiritual thing. So when food, you know, this is an example, when food no longer has a health benefit, it now can change over, cross that line to where it's healthy to, you know, lust. And it becomes an unhealthy fleshly pursuit. So there's an example we could say, lust of the flesh. And it always comes at some cost, and there's never a benefit to it. What about another area? Let's look at sexual desire. Again, totally God-given. It's meant to mirror our intimate relationship with God. It's meant to be the spiritual connection through physical union that honors God and your partner. It's meant for physical pleasure that's not self-serving. It also takes work because it's relational and it's intimate. That doesn't come naturally. It's not like the lust you see in Hollywood, which is like easy. So when sex no longer has this spiritual benefit and it becomes self-serving, it's no longer what we said. It's not God-honoring anymore. It only brings physical pleasure. Intimacy is obviously can be lacking. Guilt and regret can result. Being its motive is pleasure, it can become addicting, and now it can represent lust that has no relational benefit. And it can have an appetite that can't be satisfied. It can cause friction between couples and so on and so on. There's a lot of examples of negative once it crosses that line. But let's look at a good example of how someone deals with it in Scripture. We'll go to Genesis 39. We're starting in verse 6. It's a description of Joseph and Potiphar's wife when she was making advances at him. So let's read the account, starting in verse 6. It says, So Potiphar left everything he had in Joseph's care with Joseph in charge. He did not concern, anything him, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he's entrusted to my care. No one's greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because you're his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go bed with her or even be with her. One day he went in the house to attend his duties. None of the servants were inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and he ran out of the house. And when she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand, he'd run out of the house, she called her house servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until her master came home. Then she told him the story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me, but as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife was told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he made responsible for all that he was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. So Joseph obviously saw that line. He never got caught up in the moment. He was always on the defense against threats. He even went to the extreme, what they were talking about in verse 10, where he said he wouldn't even be with her. So he, he, he approached it the way you would with someone who knows this. This is a serious situation. So do we see temptation 
<clears throat> there's a serious crisis that needs a quick response, that needs that defensive approach like, like Joseph um, approached it, and most of us would probably answer no. I know I would. How about another area? We'll just pick exercise. Again, it's God-given. even says 1 Timothy 4.8. It even says physical exercise has some value. But it goes on to say that spiritual exercise is value in every way because of what it promises life for both the present and the future. But the point is, it has value. It's not without value. It's healthy. And examples, I mean, I don't even have to tell you. You can pretty much figure out. That it reduces stress, strengthens your body, you know, etc. But what, what if it's all we think about? What if you become obsessed with it? What if we're always looking in the mirror, looking at either how great we look or even the other extreme? We're always upset at how bad we look. We're not happy. It doesn't matter where you fall on that. But if it becomes consuming, you've just crossed from a healthy to an unhealthy. Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So what about other things now? Status? What about money? What about titles? What about positions? What about degrees, like educational? Success in general? What about these things? Again, God-given. There's no question. You can't say that there are not unhealthy, God-given things. But this area is a little different, and it may not be as black and white as the previous ones we talked about. Because now you're falling into what uh, First John was talking about, the pride of life category, where pride's, it's harder to identify, and it's also harder to see that line um, that we know we shouldn't cross. But I think we can all agree that there's a difference between God blessing us and bestowing gifts and talents on us that just so happen to result in money. They, they might happen to result in position and title and success. But contrary versus people who define themselves by these values, people who define themselves by the amount of effort that I can make this happen, I can do this. And those people would also be devastated and lose a sense of who they are if that was taken away from them. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over city, the watchman stays awake in vain. So do you, do you and I really understand what that means? If you and I really want to do the will of God, we have to act in accordance with his will, his kingdom, in order for those, all our endeavors to be blessed. Because if God doesn't favor our undertaking, then there's no amount of effort, there's no amount of determination, no amount of degrees, there's no amount of any of this stuff, resources, it doesn't matter. It's not going to happen. We can't take any credit for what we achieve as followers of Jesus, therefore making our dreams and endeavors, they just become what? They become idols because God isn't behind it. And we know that things won't turn out well for us. And it's meaningless apart from the will of God anyways. Our flesh makes the created our God all of a sudden, and that's one of the dangers, not our creator. And we end up doing the same thing the Israelites did. So Solomon, the most successful king in history, he was able to, to say in Ecclesiastes 2.11, he said, Then I consider all that my hands had done in toil, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained under the sun. I just think of like professional athletes, the temptation they have, like the sports brands that, that pay these athletes multi-millions of dollars. I mean, 
to imagine just having this perspective of, no, it all comes from God, it's not me, when the whole world's telling you, they're reinforcing it, you know? It's the opposite. I mean, to be able to have that same attitude that Solomon had is just pure, it's true humility from God. It's the opposite of the pride of pride. It's just humility. But what about like, okay, money and success? And actually, Scripture talks a lot of that. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. So I mentioned, as we were talking about this line you cross, it can go from appreciation over the line to where it becomes lust. And when it crosses that line, it becomes self-destructive. Because, as we mentioned before, lust cannot be satisfied. And since it can't be quenchable, it only results in our own downfall and our own destruction. Um, But the problem is not knowing that there's a war going on. We're not even telling ourselves this in the midst of temptation. Because we're not approaching it the way Joseph approached it. We're not guarding ourselves. We're not preparing ahead. And then we end up being deceived because we choose to be by our flesh. I think of King David. His lustful desires would have cost him so much more. They already cost a lot. I mean, it destroyed a soldier's life. It destroyed his family. And that's even when he finally repented and he saw his sin and he came before God. So David, one of the best examples in the Bible, he struggled with double-mindedness. You know the story in 2 Samuel. So it's David and Bathsheba. It's in chapter 11, and we'll, we'll read through this. It's um, starting in verse 1. It says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israel army. They destroyed the Amorites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed, walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanliness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I'm pregnant. So David sent his word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite, and Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master servants and did not go down to his house. David was told Uriah did not go home. So he asked Uriah, haven't you just come from a military campaign? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark of Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, stay here one more, t- one more day, and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat amongst his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city 
to fight. David, I'm sorry, didn't you know that, that he would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerob, Besheth? Didn't a woman drop an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asked you this, say to him, Moreover, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. The messenger sent out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Job had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance of the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at the servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah, the Hittite, is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab, Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So double-mindedness, double-mindedness is, right? we saw in this example, constantly choosing this pattern of sinning, covering up. Something we know is wrong, something that makes us feel condemned and guilty, you know, while potentially leading us even farther from battle. So all the efforts David went through, he invested in, so it's even harder for him to repent because he's plotting all these lies and deceit, and it even makes it harder to confess, to repent. It leads us... We do this because we listen to, the, to what the enemy has to tell us. We don't listen to the Holy Spirit who wants to convict us. When we choose to listen to our flesh, we open ourselves up to listening not only to what the enemy wants to tell us, not because he wants us to sin, but he wants us to question truth. But when we choose to battle the enemy in our flesh, and this is probably the most important thing, we actually become defenders of truth. Like Joseph he set up parameters. He always had in mind that he was defending truth. So he never had to get that close. Even when he did and he was tricked to being that close, God still protected him. See, David's lust became a pattern of sin, trying to cover up, and it's a horrible place to be in. All of us have probably been there at one point or another. Some of us might even be there at this very moment, living in a pattern of denial and cover-up. But when we live in this double-minded state, dealing with our guilt, listening to lies from the enemy. And when we're self-focused, but we're not God-focused, just like David, we allow ourselves to be dragged away by this sin. But see, when we are defending truth, when we understand there's this war going on, we're quick to receive the truth when we sin. We're prompted to repent. We're willing to hear the Holy Spirit speak to us at that moment. It helps us just to be at this point of repentance. And since Paul said in Romans that his spirit is who he is, so we need to have that same attitude Paul had to identify ourselves with God's kingdom, our spiritual selves, not with our past, not with our mistakes. That's the flesh, and that's not our identity. And Toby and Becca and I have been doing this middle school thing with the kids where we're teaching this book on identity. And it's so important that we understand what's true identity and what isn't. Because you can pick any identity you want. You can say, I'm a rock, but it doesn't make it true. So it's so important that we understand Scripture. We understand what God tells us who we are. We mentioned in James 1.8 at the beginning, a double-minded man. He's unstable in all his ways. 
Hosea 10.2 says, Their heart is deceitful, and now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will demolish their altars and destroy their sacred stones. So our heart is equated with our will and our motives or our desires. The will of, I mean, the desire of our will. The desire of our spirit is in our heart, and it's satisfied in godly things. It's satisfied in Christ. And as we talked about before, the flesh cannot be satisfied. The more it's fed, the more it wants. And vice versa, the more it's denied, the less appetite it has. But do we believe that? Or do we tell ourselves the more we feed it, the more we can control it? It's the opposite. A divided heart, Jose is talking about, is like double-mindedness. You're trying, to, you're trying to satisfy your spirit and you're trying to satisfy your flesh, and you can't. James 1, 14 through 16 says, But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. So James telling us, don't be deceived. What does that mean, being deceived? Simply put, it's just not seeing the reality of a situation or telling us, telling ourselves the situation is something different than it really is. You and I are only deceived if we want to be. And when we're in the heat of the moment, we don't tell ourselves that. We don't even believe that. But it's still a choice. We see truth in a situation when we look at it through our spirit, confirmed by the Holy Spirit and by his word. We're deceived when we look at something while we're also pursuing and trying to gratify our flesh in the examples of what we talked about are unhealthy. Because we said our flesh doesn't reason, it just wants. And when we act on temptation, we make a decision, ignoring our spirit, our true self, and only thinking how to satisfy our flesh. And what do we end up doing? We end up disobeying God, and we betray our own true selves. We're dragged away, as it said in James, because of the absence of reason that our flesh has. And our appetite becomes multiple times larger than our reasoning. Therefore, it just becomes disregarded. And we no longer see what's real. But a false reality, that's the problem. We can create these realities, but they're just not true. They're false. We can only change our desire from good to evil if we, know, if we no longer want to see a true reality of the situation. Remember, we make this choice to be deceived. And deceit drags our logical mind or our will away by giving into this false reality. Matthew 6.24, it says, No man can serve two masters. Either you hate one and you'll love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other. So even saying here, you cannot serve both God and money. You can't have two masters. You have to pick and choose. Just like we're talking in a war. I mean, it's like, is it your flesh or is it spirit? Who am I? Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. If we want to be freed from the trap of false reality, we must control what our mind is exposed to. This verse in Philippians, it's an example of what comes from God, what's God-ordained. And it's contrary to what we read in John, when he's talking about the things that aren't from the Father, our lusts, our pride, it's exactly opposite. It gives us what we should be thinking about. Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And you and I know Scripture, it does renew our mind. It changes our mind. It changes our hearts, and it turns our will towards the Father. To avoid double-mindedness, we have to devote ourselves to prayer and Scripture. And it is absolutely the only assurance we have to guard against double-mindedness. We can have all the desire, like, I want to please God, I want to, and you can be as strong-willed about pleasing God, but it's all futile. It's only the assurance we have in spending time with God. So Jesus said in John 17, 14 through 15, he said, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So this cost of following Jesus is being uncompromising in rejecting this lust of the flesh and the pride of life, the things that are counter to God's kingdom. This fear I know I have is, is that some unbeliever who knows me, that they, they either don't know that I'm a follower of Christ or that they think my life just kind of looks like everyone else's. That's actually a fear I have. I mean, everything in Scripture, you see how God blessed people who were persecuted. You know, the Holy Spirit used people for their kingdom. And if, we're, if you take sides, the other side's going to oppose you. I don't want to be confused with someone in this world for that reason because there is a cost. But is that a fear you guys have today? I mean, is that something you're worried about or do you really feel like this battle's real and I need God to show me this battle? I need to be an active participant in it. But if it's not, you know, let's ask the Lord to wake us up to this truth. Let's ask God, like George is praying, break bondage, show us this spiritual warfare that's going on. And free us, you know, from this, this double-mindedness. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we just thank you, God. You've chosen us for your purpose, not for ours, Lord. And that our full fulfillment, our sense of worth, is only in following your purpose for us, Lord. And Father, in order to know that, in order to do that, in order to be obedient to you, we need to understand what's going on around us, Lord. We need to understand this war we're in. And we need to know that we are a new creation. We are the spiritual persons that you have ordained us to be. And we are here. We have to live with the flesh, but we do know that there's a side of our flesh, Lord, that is our enemy. And we need to be continually not only aware but constantly pr protecting ourselves, our true selves, against the side of us that wants to harm us, that doesn't have anything beneficial in mind for us. So, Lord, just bring this awareness to our hearts today. Let your Holy Spirit just speak truth on us. And we thank you for the privilege of following you. Lord, I think of Paul when he's saying, you know, it's to live is Christ, to die is gain. Like, I, I admit I don't even have that perspective I don't see myself fully, Lord, in, in the true person of the spirit that you give me because of the bondage that still holds me down, Lord, in the flesh. So even I, Lord, I cry out for that freedom. I just ask you to give me that sense of knowledge, Lord, that truth. And we just thank you for this time, Jesus. In your name, amen.